Tolstoy posits that history cannot take a step forward until it chooses one of the following two options. The first is a return to the belief in a deity that intervenes in our affairs. The other option is being able to pin down or ascribe meaning to the forces or power that produces historical events. Tolstoy realizes that with the Age of Enlightenment, a return to that first frame of mind is impossible. So he continues to explore the force or power that moves men. Tolstoy highlights that much of humanity takes for granted that Napoleon could raise an army of 600,000 men to go to war. Was it really one man who had this dramatic effect on moving so many others? After all, Napoleon didn't have a godlike physical type power, nor does Tolstoy believe that Napoleon's values had this overwhelming moral force to it. He notes that historians, even in the 1860s, greatly differ regarding Napoleon's genius and morality. Tolstoy highlights leaders and diplomats that were able to rule over millions but in his view, lacked moral qualities. Here he refers to Louis XI, as well as Clemens von Metternich. Metternich was the Austrian Empire's foreign minister and chancellor. He served from around 1809 up until the liberal revolutions of 1848, and Louis XI was the French king from 1461 to 83, and he had quite the colorful nickname, the Universal Spider. He was a king known for spinning plots and conspiracies, but he did sign a treaty in 1475 that ended the Hundred Years' War. Tolstoy felt that these two had questionable morals despite the profound nature of their leadership. This is a challenging exploration for Tolstoy in trying to determine the qualities in men that enable them to lead and influence so he comes up with a definition for power, and he'll prop up this definition only to challenge it. But he explains power as the collective will of a people that is transferred to a ruler. Tolstoy wants to present the idea, before challenging it, that power stems from the people and is given to leadership. How true is this supposition? And why was Napoleon given the great power that he had. Tolstoy then looks to the efforts of uprisings. He's quickly challenging the presupposition that he set up. He asks, what about Napoleon III, who nobody really regards as a quality leader? Was he a representation of the people's will? And how about the Ural Cossack leader, Yemelyan Pugachev, leader of a major rebellion during Catherine's reign? This rebellion began after taxation on fishing. How far, Tolstoy is asking, did the concept of collective will extend to Pugachev? Tolstoy also notes that some revolutions or assassinations begin with palace plots of a small group of people. To what extent are the actors led by any type of collective will? And when Napoleon would extend his empire into new territories, was that the collective will of the people whose lands were conquered? 
What he's going through here, mind you, is something of a thought experiment in terms of analyzing the nature of power which underlies the philosophy of the entire book. Tolstoy ponders if we should assume that the collective will of people is conditionally or unconditionally transferred to a new ruler, and whether every struggle against a power that can be regarded as established is an infringement, or if it's a matter of the collective will of people being transferred quite frequently during unstable times. Are there, for example, conditions where power can be taken rightfully when rulers break in either spoken or unspoken covenant. This could be various things, like taxing the populace too much, or not enough to have a small central government that could defend itself, not allowing enough freedoms for a population to live a tolerable existence, allowing too many freedoms to the point that there's disorder and complete chaos. It is a challenging metaphysical discussion. Tolstoy is positing that leaders must do the right thing by their people, but what is the right thing, and when is that principle violated to the point that leadership can be taken? Some of these moral precepts seem to go unknown and are indefinite, and Tolstoy seems to be acknowledging that the success of rulers in their ability to keep power has a bit of magic and majesty to it. We have a dynamic where successes of a country or struggles result from the success or failure to adhere to these transcendent values, so to speak. Tolstoy then makes a point as to the subjectivity of historians. They may lift one leader up in the historical record for furthering a value that the historians wish to promote. Tolstoy is getting at what one group of people might call rebellion or insurrection is just a subjective label. Tolstoy was likely looking at the revolutions of the late 18th century, both in France and America. The morality of the efforts to overthrow the existing governments and kingships, both in France and America, were viewed through very different lenses, depending on whose side you favored or fought for. Tolstoy speaks of the historical record as more a matter of perception once you get away from believing that a divine force controls or interferes in human events. Tolstoy notes that there are stormy and complicated periods of history where various powers arise and contend against one another, and his novel dealt with one of those. He references some of the stages of the French Revolution, including the National Convention, the Committee on Public Safety, the Directory, and Bonaparte. Which of these was a legitimate power? Which was a manifestation of any collective will? Who were immoral usurpers? Tolstoy then moves on to historians or thinkers who argue that power rests on a conditional delegation to carry out the will of the people of generally understood powers. Tolstoy acknowledges the problem with this dynamic is being able to pin down what such powers or responsibilities are. One of Tolstoy's major points here is that historians or other academics in the soft sciences tend to arrive at answers they set out to find. Each historian, for example, has their own view of what consists of a nation's progress. 
but will usually use a number of common yet vague factors to measure same. This could include greatness, quite vague, wealth, which can be calculated by GDP, freedom, also vague, or so-called enlightenment, naturally in line with the values of the time. While there is a multiplicity of factors, it still is extremely challenging to the point of impossible to get an accurate account of the causes of history. This is something of a critique against historians who try and think there's some type of authority in explaining historical causes like civil wars, revolutions, and conquests. Tolstoy ponders, how was it that Louis XIV and Ivan the Terrible had their reigns and relatively tranquilly, while Louis XVI and Charles I were executed by their own people. Tolstoy feels that there are no definitive answers to these questions. He's acknowledging the difficulty there would be in attributing constant transfers of a collective will from one person to another during a period like the French Revolution, and how the honest historian should eventually come around to acknowledge there is a lot more at play than what they think is a cause. It's a multiplicity of factors that include accidents, cunning individuals, mistakes, exploitation of weakness, good diplomacy. Tolstoy then gets into greater detail of analyzing the situation of the will of individuals being transferred conditionally, where the condition remains completely unknown to us. It remains in the atmosphere as something majestic or transcendent. He's arriving at a conclusion that some power or force lies within the people of the nation rather than the leaders who obtain power. The leaders, if anything, can be symbolic of the activity of all the people. He puts this up as a proposition and then immediately questions it. Do these leaders serve as an expression of the people's general will or just a part of it? He notes the type of scandals or vice that have involved certain European courts. Napoleon and Catherine the Great both were less than pious and had their affairs. Did this reflect any realities of the populations they represented? Or is it just certain parts of Napoleon or Catherine represented the French or those under Russian rule? This chapter is more an exploration of questions of presenting arguments about how historians think and then dissecting them. And historians seems to be a stand-in for academics in general. This could include philosophers and those engaged in a metaphysical approach to understanding the world. Tolstoy believes in a tendency to ascribe persons a greater truth that could be quite abstract, something that rises above the natural imperfections of any leader. And they say he stands for that because the that is what the academics and historians want to see promoted. So that could be classic or modern ideas of freedom, equality, enlightenment, progressivism, or culture. Tolstoy seems to be saying that intelligentsia comes up with an 
emphasizes one of these values as the goals of human progress in a particular time and then measures a leader against those selected values. For example, how did a particular American president promote civil rights or economic rights in another time? How much did a particular Eastern European leader limit rights, hinder freedom of the press, for example? Tolstoy also sees a link between those leaders who are analyzed and those leaders who have been successful in having constructed the greatest amount of monuments. Overall, the people who seem to be studied the most include kings, generals, diplomats, reformers, journalists, and religious figures such as popes. Tolstoy does find it odd that the collective will is transferred to these individuals we know of, as opposed to remaining with that great number of people who have the power and seem to give it over. His argument is essentially that power always lies with the people governed, the unknown and endless masses. He also notes that the focus of historians is often on violent actions, as opposed to small groups who go about their day-to-day lives in a relatively peaceful manner, tending to their own garden, so to speak. How much do these kindly rural people symbolize humanity? Those mundane, everyday efforts are glossed over in favor of the multitudes who go out and engage into warlike efforts. Tolstoy then slightly pivots again and asks, is the movement of people at times such as the Crusades explained by the lives of leaders such as the Godfreys, or all the Louis, or Peter the Hermit. So the question is re-raised. Was the mass movements of people during the Napoleonic Wars really attributable to the time's namesake? Tolstoy is presenting the impasse that he wants to stress, that there is so much unknown as to the causes of historical events. So especially for academics, don't act like you know. Don't fall victim to the sin of pride. There is something unknown, mysterious, transcendent in life. And it's just as good in Tolstoy's view as attributing the causes of such historical events to God as anything else. Yet the strong belief that human endeavor is so limited in looking at causes never stopped Tolstoy from his significant exploration in his novel, namely why and how can man be driven and drive others to kill each other on such a profound level. Tolstoy finds it more remarkable that men so often are willing to do so when sharing the same religious values and he most assuredly would have found Russia's invasion of Ukraine similarly deplorable as he did Napoleon's invasion of Russia, or war in general. In speaking about patriotism, in terms of how it was viewed by Russian society, Tolstoy later wrote that at its core, patriotism is nothing else but a means of obtaining for the rulers their ambitions and covetous desires. And for the ruled, it is the abdication of human dignity, reason, conscience, and is a slavish enthrallment to those in power.